Please open your uh, Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 30 this morning. We're continuing our series titled Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, a uh, chronological walk through the life of Jesus uh, in the four Gospels. And as we learned in last week's, uh, the beginning of John's Gospel here, chapter 5, it begins a period which is commonly referred to as a festival cycle, which runs through chapter 10. Uh, In chapter 5, we have an unnamed feast here, but a focus on what is known as the weekly Sabbath festival. In chapter 6, the the Passover festival is celebrated. Chapters 7 and 8, the Feast of Booths, or also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And in chapter 10, the Feast of Dedication, or what we commonly know as Hanukkah, that festival. And what John is going to show his readers through these chapters here is that Jesus taught that he was the true meaning or fulfillment of every single one of these festivals. And these chapters are characterized by an increasingly escalating time of conflict between Jesus and the Jewish authorities. And as we're going to see in our text this morning, Jesus' claims are much more direct and much more explicit than much of what we have heard from him up to this point in his ministry. What were the authorities to make of these new claims that Jesus is making? And what are we to make of it? If Jesus is indeed everything that he claims to be, then there could be no indifference on their part, and there certainly could be no indifference on our part. So with that thought in mind, please stand as we read this passage of Scripture today from the Word of God. John chapter 5, verse 18. As I mentioned, we'll be reading through verse 30. And the Word of God says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Let's pray. Father, these are weighty, weighty words. Jesus making some audacious claims to those who were there listening to him and to those of us here today. Father, are they with merit? We will look at your word to find the answers today, Father. And I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will now rule in this place. Father, may not it be my words that are heard. May may it be your word that is spoken clearly and understood clearly. And maybe for some today, for the first time, clearly. I pray, Lord, that all who hear would be made alive, either rejuvenated in their spirit, knowing of the hope that awaits us. For those who are not yet in Christ, maybe for the first time the veil will be lifted from their heart and the scales removed from their eyes as they see the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be honored today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I'm sure many adults have heard of this phrase, but I'll ask the children real quick. Who of you has heard of the phrase, there's an elephant in the room? Any child knows what that phrase means, there's an elephant in the room. Anyone know? No? How about an adult? An adult want to help me out? 
What does it mean? Okay, so it's an odd situation that everyone knows about, but no one is addressing. We all agree on that? Okay. Uh, I'll thank Wikipedia for this information here. There's an elephant in the room. It's referring to something that's an obvious truth that is being ignored, or an obvious problem that no one wants to discuss. It's based on the idea that an elephant in the room would be impossible to overlook, thus those who pretend it's not there has chosen to avoid the looming big issue. All right? So the elephant in the room. Now, our text today is in response to what took place in the first 15 verses of this chapter, the healing of an invalid on the Sabbath. Just to recap our story from last week, Jesus visits a pool called Bethesda uh, at the Sheep Gate, which was in the northeast corner of the city, where people with various illnesses gathered to seek healing. The water was occasionally disturbed, perhaps from some sort of underground spring with an irregular flow or maybe even drainage from another pool. And some people believe that by going into this water, they could be healed by getting into it when the disturbance occurred. Now, regardless, what we do know is that this man, who we learned about last week, could not get into the pool by himself. But after 38 years of being in this condition, he meets the one who is not just the true source of healing, but of life, eternal life. One commentary that I read about that says, what would we say if Jesus asked us whether we wanted to be healed of our own illnesses, physical or otherwise? Do we want to be rid of our addictions and other sins? Ten minutes hard thought on this question could lead us to new depths of repentance, end quote. So instead of helping the man into the pool, Jesus gives him something much greater, immediate and complete healing. John Barrett, who was a a Protestant clergyman, said, Just as the 38 years proved the gravity of the disease, so the carrying of the bed and the walking proved the completeness of the cure. In a moment, 38 years of disease was gone. So what we see immediately after this healing, John tells us, is that this occurred on the Sabbath day, therefore, therefore setting up a striking conflict between the Jews and Jesus. Now, as a parenthetical note, some of your Bibles may refer to the term Jews here. There's a Greek word specifically used for these particular Jews. Uh, Ludeoi is the Greek term, and it refers to really religious leaders or people who would have been under their influence during that time. And these are people who particularly opposed Jesus during his ministry on earth. So we're not talking about the entire Jewish population, but this, this term here is for a specific group of Jewish leaders, okay, who opposed him. So basically the Jews rebuked the man for carrying his mat on the Sabbath. We saw that in verse 10. But as we previously learned about the Old Testament law regarding the Sabbath, it does not prohibit this activity, but interpretation of the command to work on the Sabbath did prohibit it. In other words, as Pastor Steve previously talked about, the Jews took the law and they put circles around the law to make the law even more of a burden. So since Jesus explicitly commanded this man to carry his mat, there's clearly a conflict with the interpretation of the law of God. The Jews believe the man is sinning as he obeys Jesus' command. And so if you look back in verse 16, it says, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But his response precisely captures the heart of all that he is and all that he does by saying, my father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus implies that he like the Father, is Lord over the Sabbath, doing God's work as one who is equal to God. This is a direct claim to deity, and the Jews, by the way, have no doubt what he is claiming. If Jesus was just a man, as the Jews thought, then this claim would have been blasphemy on Jesus' part. So while Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, says that God rested on the Sabbath, Jewish rabbis believe that God could continually uphold the universe, which is a work, without actually breaking the Sabbath. However, Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus is the radiance and the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So naturally, the Jews want to kill him for making such a claim. And this brings us to where we pick up the text today, which begins with the same verse where we left off last week. Verse 18 says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the elephant in the room is this obvious claim 
that Jesus makes about his equality with God, and in fact, that he is God himself. It's impossible to overlook, and his Jewish opponents would rather avoid dealing with this looming issue altogether and be done with this apparent blasphemer. Their challenge leads to Jesus' response that we read about today, a statement that is fundamental to understanding Jesus and all that he does. It is the relationship between the Father and the Son that makes sense out of everything Jesus says and does, and so it's important that we pay close attention to this text that we are reading today. So, the first point on your outline is this. Everything Jesus does is reflective of God the Father. And everything the Father does is reflected in Jesus' life. Verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So Jesus begins by saying the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. He is completely dependent on the Father. Now, in Jewish culture, the Semitic version of a son or the ideal son is one who would basically mimic or reproduce his father's thoughts and actions. And this is exactly what we see Jesus doing here in this text. It's an expression of humility, of obedience, and an expression of dependence. His claim that the son can do nothing of his own accord now does not imply that he's not able to do anything on his own but rather emphasizes complete harmony both in purpose and action in the Trinity itself. Again, in verse 17, he says, My father is working until now, and I am working. And their response in verse 18 was that they wanted to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So when Jesus makes this statement here in verse 19, two things are certain. Jesus once again claims full divinity and fundamental equality with God. And while not denying their equality, the Father and the Son have different functions and roles. And the Son is subject to the Father in everything that he does. I believe what we also see here in this text is a unique ability in that Jesus is able to see the providential work that the Father is doing in the events of everyday life, things that ordinarily normal people cannot see when he says that he only sees what the Father is doing. And because Jesus is simply not just the ideal son that I just spoke about, but also the unique son, the only son from the Father, according to John 1.14, and the one who is at the Father's side, according to John 1.18, when he says the son sees what his father is doing, it is not because he read about him in scriptures or history or merely observes his creation. Rather, since Jesus is at the Father's side, totally at one with the Father, according to John 10.30, he sees God differently than anyone else ever has. John 6, 46 says, No one has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Unclouded by sin, what Jesus sees refers to his unbroken communion with his Father. His whole life, everything he does, is a mere reflection of what he sees the Father doing. So he does nothing by himself. Or more literally, he does nothing from himself. His source of being and activity comes from his Father. If Jesus could act from himself, doing so would mean that he existed autonomously from the Father. John eight forty four tells us of one who is autonomous. When Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That is autonomy. Or how about Genesis 3, 6? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. That's autonomy. The son is distinct from the father, or he would not be the son, but he is not autonomous. Beyond that, he does whatever or everything that the Father does. So then everything Jesus does is reflective of God the Father, but also everything the Father does is reflected in Jesus' life. Jesus is claiming to be the full revelation of the Father. Let us also pay close attention to the fact that he is the model, the perfect model of true humanity. Okay? A model that we as Christians 
should be imitating in our lives. Number one, he's thoroughly open to God. Number two, he's humble. Number three, he does nothing of his own. As believers in Christ, the Spirit of God allows us to share in this same type of relationship with the Father. Friends, this would be a great time to think about whether we are modeling this type of behavior in our own lives. Are you thoroughly open to God? Is humility a virtue that is evident in your life? Do you live according to your will, or do you live according to the will of God the Father? Certainly worth consideration. The second point is this. Jesus' complete revelation of the Father is grounded in the Father's own love for the Son. Verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Is the Father's love, please understand this, is the Father's love that is at the heart of everything. God's love for his people leads him to send the Son so that we may be able to share through the Spirit in the Father's love for the Son. All right, I'll repeat that. God's love for his people leads him to send the Son so we may be able to share through the Spirit in the Father's love for the Son. John 16, 27, Jesus says, For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. He goes on to say in John 17, verses 22 and 23, to the Father, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. This relationship between the Father and the Son, which has existed for all eternity, is why Jesus does what he does. And what he does is what he sees the Father doing. God the Father is in control, the source of all, yet holds back nothing from the Son. God shows Jesus all that he does, and in turn, Jesus shares these things with us. John fifteen fifteen. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Continuing on, verse 20. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. In verse 41 of this chapter, Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people. So the miracles and the works that he does are not due to any desire for human praise. Rather, he does them so that others will see that God the Father who has sent him is working through him and revealing his very character to them. God revealing his character to people through Jesus Christ. And what it should have produced in them and what it should produce in us is a jaw-dropping amazement of who the Father is and how he has revealed himself to us through the Son. If we are not amazed by Jesus, then just like those people then, we've not really seen him for who he is. It should amaze you. But what are these greater works that Jesus is referring to? What greater work is more great than even healing the sick or giving sight to the blind, or causing the mute to speak. Well, according to verse 21 here, it says, raising the dead. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now for some, they would see a physical resurrection. The story of Lazarus in John chapter 11, for example. Or for over 500, the resurrection of Christ himself. But then, the very voice of this same Jesus the risen Savior who conquered sin and death, commanding and summoning all mankind to a final resurrection and judgment. So once again, Jesus makes another claim to deity here, showing that he only does what God can do because God is indeed the giver and the taker of life, is he not? Raising the dead is possible only for God, yet Jesus claims this power for himself. In Deuteronomy 32, 39, the Lord says, See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. And 1 Samuel 2, 6 says, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. So although commissioned by the Father, Jesus has a role that transcends merely committing to and executing the Father's plan. 
He gives life to whom he will. His own will is involved. So while Jesus can do nothing by himself, or rather from himself, as we saw in verse 19, he does have a will of his own, authorized by the Father to act according to that will, which, don't miss this, is always in complete harmony with the Father's will. So what do we see? The Father and the Son, their roles distinct and yet one. When Jesus told Martha in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life at the raising of her brother Lazarus from the dead, many began to realize the significance of what he was saying in this text that we are reading today. These are staggering claims, and we should see the significance of these as well. May the Lord help us to marvel, as did the onlookers in Bethany at the raising of Lazarus, that we as believers were four days dead in the tomb of our own sins. And apart from his voice calling us forth, we would remain there to this day. So for those of us who are believers, there is an already not yet, a new life that we already have received. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But then, not yet, the resurrection of the body at Christ's second coming, the eternal life. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 57. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, what an amazing hope. What an amazing promise. What an amazing God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I encourage you today with these words. Our third point today is this. Because the Father has given all judgment to the Son... It is right that Jesus should be worshipped and honored because it is he to whom all will give an account. Verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Just as we have seen multiple times already, Jesus here makes another claim to deity. This time it's by saying emphatically that the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. You see, judgment was always understood as a prerogative 
that was exclusive to God the Father himself. And yet, here Jesus is saying that the Father is delegating the very work the Jews considered that which belonged to God alone, final judgment, to the Son. Genesis 18.25 and Judges 11.27 describe God as the judge of all the earth. So Jesus reiterates something recorded earlier in John 3.35 and he said, uh, when it said, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. This includes the giving of life and judgment. The most fundamental realities of human existence. And what Jesus does in these verses is He claims His right to such responsibility and power. As verse 27 says, It is because of his very identity, who he is, that he is given this authority. He is the light of the world, according to John 8, 12. And the truth itself, according to John 14, 6. And his very coming to earth is a judgment on all that is evil and false. People will ask, well, doesn't John 3, 17 say that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him? Yes, it does. But why was this condemnation unnecessary? Because John 3.18 says that whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The unbelieving world, friends, is condemned already. So this judgment that's in view here, ultimately, is final judgment. And why has the Father given all judgment to the Son? Verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Now the context of the word honor here is a, it's a holy fear of God, okay? And, and this holy fear exists for the Jews, naturally, because they're aware of coming judgment by God. So that's what this, this honoring is all about, a holy, reverent fear of God. So the very same honor given to the Father, Jesus says, is to be given to the Son. The Jewish idea or characterization here is that like of an agent or an authorized messenger who was to be received as the one who sent him would be received, Moses and the prophets, for example, they served as God's agents and messengers. And the Jews held that, quote, a man's agent is like the man himself, end quote. But here God is doing the sending of his messenger. And no one sent by God in the Old Testament ever claimed equal honor with God. So Jesus is either 100% holy and completely God, or he is an outright blasphemer, punishable by death according to the law. Leviticus 24, 16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. Now in the last part of verse 23, Jesus makes the point even more emphatically. The one who does not honor the Son fails to honor the Father. Again, this honor to be understood as a holy fear of God. At the heart of the Jewish religion was honoring God. And Jesus plainly tells him that without proper honor that is due the Son, they could never honor the Father rightly. And this is where so many religions, particularly religions like Judaism or Islam, fail to represent the truth about God. Since they consider Jesus to be merely a prophet, they do not honor and worship him rightly. The truth is these verses are a bit uncomfortable for many people who hold to a monotheistic view of God. Some being Jews and Muslims, but others even professing Christians who claim to be born again but have no proper understanding of the nature of the triune God of the Bible and how the Trinity is absolutely necessary for salvation. Do you hear me? The Trinity is absolutely necessary for salvation. The gospel shows us that God is one, but not in the same way that the Jews and the Muslims understand it. If you hold to a monotheistic view of God, but you struggle with the truth that Jesus is God, look to the scriptures. And I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that the word of God would help you to understand this truth in light of what has now been revealed by the Son of God about himself. And if you say that Jesus is not the unique, one and only begotten Son of God, who has exclusive and ultimate authority over every person on earth, then this gospel offers no encouragement for you. Nor is it likely that you are even saved. All judgment has been given to him, and all are to honor the Son, a holy fear, just as they honor the Father. Any room for syncretism here would deny the uniqueness and exclusivity of Jesus. The fourth point. 
Those who recognize Jesus as the unique Son receive His words as having come from God and thus believe the Father who sent Him. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes in Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. There is a connection between life and judgment. It's an, it's an if-then truth that is both a blessing and it's a warning. And it goes like this. If you have eternal life in Christ, then you have escaped condemnation or judgment. That's the blessing. The warning is this. If you do not have eternal life in Christ, then condemnation or judgment awaits you. It's imperative that you understand this truth. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If this is true, then what? That there is condemnation for those who are not in Christ Jesus. And so the hearing that Jesus is referring to when he says, whoever hears my words, it's more than just listening to him speak or reading his words that we now have recorded in Scripture. There are many who hear his words but are not obedient to him. I believe the more that you preach the gospel to others, you will begin to understand this. When God spoke in the Old Testament, there was a strong emphasis on the necessity of not just listening, but attending to his words, allowing them to resonate deep within the hearts of his hearers, and thus affecting change in their lives towards obedience to God. Proverbs 8, for example, is a reminder for us that when the word himself speaks, the wise hear and receive it, but the fools ignore it. Now, salvation is not only an object of hope for the future, but it's a present reality for us who are believers. If you've been born again, you have already passed from death to life. Why is this important? Because although eternal life is now only partially realized, with confidence you can face the last judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.5 5 says that God has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. It's a promise of the hope that is to come. 1 John 5.11-13 says, And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Friends, God's word does not leave us in the dark as to whether we can be sure of our salvation. Charles Spurgeon, preaching on this very text, said, quote, If I love him, I know it is because he loved me first. Love to God in us is always the work of God's love toward us. Jesus loved us and gave himself for us, and therefore we love him in return. Love to Jesus is an effect which proves the existence of its cause. Do you love Jesus? Do you feel a delight in him? Is his name as music to your ear and honey to your mouth? Do you love to hear him extolled? Oh, dear friends, I know that to many of you a sermon full of his dear name is as a royal banquet. And if there is no Christ in a discourse, it is empty and vain and void to you. Is it not so? If you do indeed love him that begat and him that is begotten of him, then this is one of the things that is written, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. End quote. Indeed, a blessed assurance. Verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. In Ezekiel 37, when the Lord asked, Son of man, can these bones live? Ezekiel's only response was, O Lord God, you know. In the valley of dry bones, by the voice of God himself, new life is breathed into those dead bones, and they live. And here, Jesus' words are reminiscent of that text. So when he says an hour is coming and is now here, the final resurrection is not necessarily in view, but again, the present reality of eternal life. And so the dead who hear the voice of the Son of God is a reference to those who are spiritually dead. And upon hearing Jesus, the voice of God himself believe and are saved and are given a new life. And how does this happen? The Lord breaks the stony, hard, rebellious heart of a sinner and turns it into a heart of flesh so that we who were dead in our sins are made alive in Christ. And for whom is the promise of this new life? Jesus says to the one who hears and believes him who sent me. 
one who hears my word and believes in him who sent me. These verses once again point to the unity of the Father and the Son. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To believe that you have received life from the Son is to believe beforehand that according to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, incapable of doing anything in and of yourself to receive that life, and by nature, a child of wrath. John three thirty six. whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And it was God, and God alone, who breathed new life into your dead soul. Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. You're familiar with this passage. But God, let me say that the right way. But God, right? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The only time an unbeliever will ever see, hear, receive, and believe the life-transforming and life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ is when God himself crushes the heart of stone and by his will causes a person to be born again. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I am so thankful that he did not leave it up to me. Are you not thankful that he did not leave it up to you? Verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. God the Father has an eternal existence uncreated, in which no one or nothing has ever given him his life. He has life in himself. Psalm 90, verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Because of this, he can give or impart life to others. In the opening of John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 4, we see regarding Jesus that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. He echoes the statement right here in verse 26 and reiterates it again in chapter 11, verse 25 of the same book when he says, again, I am the resurrection and the life. So the Son has life in himself, and he is thus able to speak to spiritually dead people and to give them life, those who by repentance and faith place their trust in him alone, the full, abundant life now, according to John 10.10, and the eternal life in the future, according to John 3.16. God the Father has granted or authorized the Son to be able to give life to other people. Knowing this helps us understand what Jesus means when he says in verse 25 that that those he calls will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Those whom he calls will believe. He will not lose one of his own. The claim here is unmistakable. Jesus himself is the source of life. To his opponents, this was utter nonsense. According to 1 Corinthians 1.18, foolishness to those who are perishing. But for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The mystery of the Godhead once again being shown that God is gracious in the giving of his love that we may partake of this wonderful gift. Now verse 27 
repeats or summarizes, if you will, what Jesus said back in verses 19 through 23, but, but also explains why authority has been given to him. And he has, been give, he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And prophesied in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and later revealed as not only the unique divine Son of God, but also truly the human Son of Man, he is the one who has been given authority by the Father to carry out the final judgment of all mankind. Daniel seven thirteen. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. The Apostle John recorded these words in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. And I'll say I make no apologies if I get a little excited about reading this text. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. My friends, this is a declaration of victory that every born-again child of God should rejoice over. Hallelujah. Amen. I must move on. The last point in your outline is this. Jesus' claim to be the Son of Man means that not only is he the life giver and judge now, but includes the expectation that he will fill such a role in the future. Verse 28. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So once again, Jesus affirms resurrection on the last day which was spoken of in Daniel 12 2 when it says and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt the connection here goes back to the Daniel 7 passage I just read where the son of man is an eschatological or, or he's an end times figure who is given dominion and glory and that all peoples nations and languages should serve or worship him Now, just so there's no confusion here, let me explain what Jesus means when he talks about those who have done good and those who have done evil. What he is not saying is that people's deeds in this life are the basis on which judgment is pronounced. That would clearly contradict not only John's gospel and his strong emphasis on the belief as Jesus as the only way of salvation, but also the entire weight of the scriptures. The scriptures which teach that one is not saved by works, but by grace through faith that which is granted by God himself. Rather, what he is saying is that good works or fruit are the evidence of true saving faith. And if those works are not existent, if that fruit is not present in the life of a professing believer, there is an absence of true faith. True believers have been brought from death to life, and as such, good works will follow the good confession. Faith without works is dead, according to James 2.26. 1 John 2.6 says that whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked, by obeying his commands. We are called to a lifestyle of moral purity, constantly aware of our absolute and utter dependence on God. For apart from him, as John 15.5 says, we can do nothing. Many times throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus, the Son of Man, as a judge, Matthew 13, 41 and 42 says, The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing 
of teeth. Matthew 25, 31 through 46 speaks of the coming of the Son of Man in his glory to separate the sheep from the goats in the final judgment, calling to himself those for whom the kingdom has been prepared from the foundation of the world, but to those who are cursed, sending them into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, eternal punishment. I say that so that you can see that Jesus was making it very clear to his opponents who he was. And if they recognize the eschatological significance of the Son of Man of Daniel 7, then they would certainly understand who it was that was standing before him, their judge. Think of the irony here. By judging Jesus as a blasphemer, they were actually judging their own judge and thus passing judgment on themselves. So we see that Jesus will judge all who are in the tombs. A universal judgment by the Son of Man where two resurrections will actually take place. This is literally what verse 29 says. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. A great promise for the believer, but a dreaded warning for the one who is not. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 says, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. R.C. Sproul commenting on this text said, quote, This passage succinctly states one of Paul's most profound teachings, our twofold solidarity with the first man, Adam, and with the last man, Christ. By virtue of our humanity, we are united with Adam in our present natural existence in sin and in death. By virtue of our faith, we are united with Christ in spiritual existence, in righteousness, and in the life to come. End quote. As a true follower of Jesus Christ, the joyful promise of a resurrection unto eternal life awaits you. But for those who have rejected this glorious gospel, the dreaded promise of a resurrection unto eternal judgment. And if the latter describes you, friend, I implore you to be reconciled to God today. Now as we look at this final verse, Jesus basically ties this whole section together essentially repeating what he first said in verse 19, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. All that he does, his words, the life he gives, the judgment he makes come from the Father and thus reveals the Father. In a sense, a true disciple who came to teach true discipleship, 100% in submission to the Father, and yet 100% ruler over all. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. I'll close with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. That's where salvation is. Not in man's purpose, not in man's plan. It's in a person. It's not in a proposition. It's not in walking an aisle. It's not in a church attendance. It's in Christ. It's not in a law. It's not in the deeds of the flesh. Salvation is in Christ. A man does not have salvation until he comes by the power of God's Spirit through faith to a living, personal, vital, intimate union with Christ as the Lord. A man is not a Christian until he has a vital union with Christ. A man is not a Christian until he is inseparably joined personally joined to Jesus Christ. A man is not a Christian until Christ becomes his life. A man is not a Christian 
unless you can cut into his heart and find love for Christ, cut into his mind and find thoughts of Christ, and cut into his soul and find a panting after Christ. Christ in you. That's the hope of glory. The Holy Spirit convicts a man of sin. The Holy Spirit empties a sinner. The Holy Spirit brings a man of faith to faith in the Son of God. Faith in the living Lord. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Most people's so-called Christianity can be taken off with their Sunday clothes. But a man who is genuinely saved has Christ living in him as an everlasting fountain springing up into everlasting life. He's been born again. He's been resurrected from the grave. He has the very image of the Son of God stamped on his heart, and it cannot be moved. May that be so for every one of you who hears my voice today, that all may honor the Son. Let's pray. Lord, we are so unworthy to be called your child to be adopted, Lord, into the fold. And who is man that you are mindful of him? And yet, Lord, you caused the Christ, your own son, for a little while to be made lower than the angels, that we may partake of the heavenly relationship that has eternally existed between you and the son, that we may lavish of its fruit and we may taste and see that indeed, Lord, you are good. Oh, Father, I could never do justice to your word. I could never, really properly, never properly preach your word. But yet, Lord, because of the guarantee that you have given us by sending the Holy Spirit to reside in us until that day, Father, we have a promise and a hope that we cling to, and it is the active, living Word of God. Father, may your Word change us. Father, cause us to die to ourselves, to live for Christ. Or may these things be said of us, Lord, that if someone ripped our hearts wide open, that they would see a panting for Christ. Not for the vain things of this world, This world is passing away, but Christ, you remain forever, Jesus. And so we give you the glory. I pray that the desire of every beating heart in this room would be to honor the Son in spirit and in truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name, the risen Savior. Amen.